coming up on Man Enough. This particular issue that we're talking about now and the revolution is from there, but this is not only an Iranian problem. When we see women in the West shouting for the women of Iran, they're also shouting for themselves. They're shouting for all the times they've been bullied and raped and not paid enough and, and kept down by men in the West, in Iran, this last bastion of women being oppressed, if that is released, it has a tremendous effect on the whole world. Being man enough, what does that mean? It's really manly to mess up, admit you're wrong, and then grow. I couldn't accept that I was evil. So maybe I'm broken, but those broken things could be corrected. Intimacy between a father and a son is me just wanting to like put my head in your lap. I love you, son. You haven't called me a benevolent sexist, but my experience is women are better. Even if it's a positive, it's still not equality. I don't blame men for that. I just blame the system. This is Man Enough. Hello. <laughs> and why does it feel awkward? Uh, <laughs> welcome back to Man Enough. I haven't, it's so funny. I've, been, I've, I've loved all of the episodes. I've been getting to watch them and listen to them. And now I'm like here with you in person. It's almost like I'm a fan. You're a guest. <laughs> Except not of you, because you and I talked way too oh, much. But of Liz, especially. Oh my gosh. Hi, and, Liz. and you shaved your beard. I shaved Jamie, my beard. Did it did you guys finally have a talk and sit uh, down um, and I discuss? think I want to believe that I had something to do with it because <laughs> look at his face and he is um you know, he's a, he, his spirit and his smile and who he is, I feel, shines through even more yeah. when the beard is gone. And you're on a tour right now because you just wrote a new book um, for middle school and yeah. um, based on the man enough um, ethos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Boys Speaking. will be human. Yes. Yes. Yeah. How's and the book tour going? It, it, great. We did three weeks on the bestseller list, which is crazy. Oh, my God. Amazing. Congrats. Um, which I wasn't expecting at all. And I'm just, uh, I was just speaking at a university last night and mm. um, doing some more press. And then we're going to wind it down and I can be a family man and get ready for the mm -hmm. next next movie next you're directing. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a we have a friend of ours on today. Indeed. Uh, Liz, you get to meet this man for the first I'm time. I'm so, so, so jazzed. Uh, Ahmed, how are you? Justin, I'm, I'm, I'm so great. I'm so happy to be here. I've, I've been a voracious consumer of your podcast. <laughs> I... I listen to it on tour. I've done 50,000 miles mm. listening to sometimes five or six podcasts. I sometimes send you WhatsApp messages. <laughs> you do. I sometimes send you, send you um, Instagram messages because <laughs> what happens with your podcast, someone says something amazing and you just stop and I actually have to stop the car, mm. have a coffee and think about it. Then someone says something ridiculous then I send you a puke emoji <laughs> on, on Instagram. Oh, that's somebody in your team. That's what they are. I love yeah. and, then, and, then somebody, and then somebody deletes it. So uh, I, I, it, it's dramatic. <laughs> it's brilliant. I and love it's, that. And it's, kept, it's kept me alive for the last year. So thank oh, you. Wow. Well, that's a sign of a good podcast. And Liz, can we, can we tell the audience a little bit about Ahmed Jalili? Yes. Ahmed is a critically... By the way, can I just say that that's amazing because you went straight into it because I was hoping for... I was hoping for an introduction. You know, there was a famous speaker once <laughs> who was being introduced by a man called Daniel, Daniel Long, uh -oh. who just said, uh, please, would you welcome Mr. Furutan? And he said, from a man called Long, that's the shortest introduction I've ever <laughs> <laughs> We're absolutely so giving, we're giving you an introduction, and there's nobody better than Liz Plank to do it. That's right. Uh, well, it. it's, it's, uh, it, you're also a man that needs no introduction, but we're going to do it anyways. You're a critically acclaimed actor, stand-up comedian. Ahmed recently starred in the Netflix global drama The Letter for the King in the HBO BBC series His Dark Materials. You've won Perrier Awards, the Edinburgh Comedy. Award panel prize in 2016. You you won that. Uh, you're known for your your work in projects like the Mummy Casanova, the uh, Ahmed Jalili show, and a Whoopi Goldberg NBC sitcom. Whoopi, you're Prince Trust recognized comedian. I don't even know what that. That sounds so fancy. You you Prince's Trust ambassador. It means that oh. well, it used to be Prince Charles. It's now King Charles. Um, you, you, they, if if they if they like what you do, 
Oh, they wow. give you this thing where they give they make you an ambassador, but basically means they can use you. So are you an ambassador? Are you an ambassador of the king now? Should it be the king's? What is it? Yeah, the king, king's trust. I'm an, I am king's the king's. Trust. It's the king's trust, and I'm an ambassador oh, wow. for his trust. Now. Okay, no, no big deal. Um, and you've been using your platform beautifully in the last uh, few months to really shed light on the women's revolution that's taking place in uh, Iran. And so we're so happy to have mm. you here to talk about all of those things with us. That really is. An amazing introduction. Thank you very much. I, 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 I was hanging my head down and I love the way you said the mummy Casanova. Um, those are two separate films. It's not a film where Casanova dies and is mummified. <laughs> Got and it. He has, to re, he has to regenerate by having a lot of sexual intercourse with people to regenerate himself. Yeah, got it. There's a comma missing there. <laughs> so as you know, because you are a uh, avid listener of this show, uh, the first question we always ask our guests, which we will ask you, is when was the last time that you didn't feel enough? Um, the, the last time I didn't feel enough um, was I had been in a Twitter spat uh, about free speech. <laughs> and I was going to a soccer game and some people were attacking me, came up to me. And, and normally I was very, I'm very strong with people, but... Um, I felt I just had to walk away. And normally I'm very strong. Normally I've, I'm, I'm Mr. Badass. I'm, I'm able, to, able to talk to people. But for the first time I felt that online, online hate had become so strong that it was going to spill over into physical violence. Mm. And that was the first time I didn't feel my words were enough. Mm. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. What do you think the role of men is in a movement that's led by women? How can men actually stand up and help these female-led movements um, without making these movements about themselves, which is something that uh, us men have a tendency to do? Um, how can we best support the women who are on the front lines risking their lives? This is a really good question because whenever questions like this come up, um, especially in relationships, when, when when a woman has a problem and she comes and brings it to her boyfriend or to her husband, the men will listen for a while. Then the way they they interact with the problem is to make it about themselves. Like a woman comes in and she's crying about an issue. And the man will say, yeah, yeah, you know what? I, I really feel you because, you know, someone said something really nasty to me at work and I just started crying and it was really embarrassing. You know, and they go, but, but what about my, yeah, I know what he mean, but listen, this really, really affected me, you know, because I was really crying. And it, people always make, men always make it about themselves. But here, it's interesting where the men have joined the women because they realize now it's not an anti-Islam thing. It's about people having the choice if they want to wear the hijab or not. They realize it's, it's about freedom of religion if you want to be a Muslim or not, or have whatever religion you want to be. This is about people realizing that life is not just about being awake, eating, sleeping, and then dying. It's about enjoying ourselves. It's about laughing. It's about a life where we can have some kind of joy. And under this regime, the women don't feel like that. So the men feel we can't do that. But the joy we get is from the women. The joy we get is when we're together. So there is a togetherness in this revolution that I think is is extraordinary. And, and they say, you know, we are together. We're a powerful country. And if we're together, we can help other countries as well. That's the message coming from the Iranians. And I think that's the most important thing that we are. We truly are one. And I think that's something we've never really understood. When we talk about the oneness of mankind, the equality of the sexes, uh, that we have to see it as part of our own journey. I think that's that's the only way we can see this. This is why this is more than just men supporting the women this is the men doing it for themselves and thinking wow the women are onto something and we are truly one and if we stay together we're going to do this it's, it's 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 not a sprint it's a marathon and many people are going to get killed and i think that's the sad thing that many of these very brave people you know iran has been has been the islamic regime of iran have been beating and battering and killing their bravest and their brightest their most brilliant young people and the men and women together saying this has to stop and we have to grab back who we are, be together, because if we're together, nothing can stop us. 
I would add just to that as well, I think. My son, who's 19 years old, who you're talking about what's happening in Iran, and then I had asked him, what do you think you can do um, to make a difference in what's happening there? Now, he's 19, he's in his own world. He, there's not something that he can imagine tangibly he can do specifically for the women and young girls in Iran. So I said, what do you think you can do? And his response was, um, well, my friends that I know now, I can change the culture of the way men treat women now. That's within my reach. The way I treat my girlfriend and value her opinions. And when I'm at work to make sure I fight for this and this. So all what he spoke of is aside from doing things that are on a global scale in his own community mm -hmm. that might take five years, 10 years, 20 years for the culture to change. But if we actually commit ourselves as men to changing things around us, then eventually that also spreads to throughout the globe. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we have, that's how we can, the, our listeners at home, when you live in the middle of Montana, when you live somewhere else that has nothing to do with something across the world, if we all know that we are in this together and therefore change our communities, hopefully that then um, permeates mm -hmm. the rest. That's a that's brilliant, Jamie, actually, because that is one way we can help is by, by listening and, and taking on issues ourselves. In, in any situation, when someone is upset, the, the, the male patriarch is, oh, shut up. Right. Would you keep quiet? Would you just get over it? Certainly in Britain, we became a culture because we're going we're to get over it. We're going to move on. And I think that's one way that we can change is if we listen and we take on board issues. That's beautiful, mm -hmm. Jamie. If I can personalize this, let me tell you what's happening right now in Iran. We have It's the first girls' revolution that's ever happened in the history of humanity. I know we had the, the suffrage movement where British women at the turn of the 19th century were fighting. What they were fighting for was equal parity with men. They were trying to fight for the vote and they got the vote. And they were trying to, I suppose, get into the men's world and try and be equal with men. Here, the women realize they can't actually exist if this um, status quo of how women are treated in general by a regime who see them as less than second-class citizens, more like animals, they know they have to bring down that regime and indeed smash it to pieces. So hmm. that has never happened before. And the reason why so many of us, uh, especially those of us who lived through the first revolution, uh, it's hit us so viscerally. So I should tell you when this happened, it happened around 1978, 79. I was like a 13-year-old boy, an adolescent, finding his way. As, as you know, adolescence is a very difficult time. You're finding out who you are. I mean, I know that my Iranian identity has been something I talk about a lot on on stage is because I'm quite traumatized by it. It's something that changed my life. Up until that point, I was at secondary school, what you call high school, and uh, there was a couple of other Iranian kids, and we were very proud to be Iranians. We'd had the Iran had been at the World Cup in 1978. They got a draw against the Scotland team. Scotland was a very strong team those those days, and to be an Iranian was something that was quite cool. When I was 12, I wore the Iranian soccer shirt and I'd speak the language very loudly. And everyone said, yeah, all the girls would say, it's a cool language. What is that language? And I felt very proud to be Iranian. And then the Islamic regime came out. And we saw nothing but awful images of, you know, Islamic extremists beating themselves in the head until they were bleeding. There was people with long beards who looked really <laughs> unkempt and they looked disgraceful. And it seemed... So anti-Western and, and anti-cool. So I became uncool to the point where I changed my nationality. I told people I was, I think I told people I was from, you know, Palermo in Sicilia. I said I was Italian and I started listening to Brazilian music. Yeah. And I started saying, obrigado, from São Paulo. So I started, became very interested in any other culture that looked dark. I became fascinated with Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. And, and, and like a lot of kids, people who don't know quite who they are. I, I think humor was a thing that became huge for me. So I became the funny guy to to exist. So in, in one sense, I have that event to thank to, to, that I went into show business and went into stand-up comedy. But also there's deep-seated trauma. And I think I'll just say this one last sentence and open up to a discussion. The reason why people are so engaged and all of us are on, the, we're on our phones 24-7 see what the latest is, is because we're so traumatized. It's hit us on such a deep visceral level 
I don't think we can really move on properly with our lives until there's some kind of resolve with what's happening in Iran right now. Thank you for that. I think that's such a powerful way to to, to frame what's going on, right? That this is the the, the first time that there's a girls-led revolution um, in in the world. And I guess, you know, why do you think that this time it is working so well? Obviously, um, you know, there's a lot of danger out there. There are a lot of protesters who are literally being executed and being uh, killed. And so it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation, but it's also very important to highlight how, you know, the positive of this, right, what, that they're being very effective and that, you know, it's not just young girls. It's young girls leading and everyone else following, including, you know, grown grown men uh, who you don't, yeah. you know, t- t- tend to see lock arms with, with, with teenage girls in any kind of uh, political movement. So why has it happened this time and, 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 and what can we learn from that, um, from what's going on in Iran for, for, for the rest of the world? You know, one thing that's really inspiring about what we're seeing in Iran is that the women are, they're, they're not demanding their equality, they're taking it. And that's such a, a massive, I suppose, lesson to the whole world because we have this concept of in Iran called the Shirazan, which means the lion woman. And you do not mess with Iranian women. And for years, they've been suppressing, you know, lots of different groups, the Baluchis, the Baha'is, all kinds of people and ethnic groups were oppressed. Gay people in the LGBTQ community were oppressed. But the the women have always been suppressed. But after what we saw with the the killing of Mahsa Amini, we realize now the one thing you do not do is mess with Iranian women. You do not mess with the generality of half the population of that country because they will mess you up. And and I, I knew this as an eight-year-old child. You know, I come from a, a Baha'i family where everyone's very sweet and it's all about service to humanity and people being nice and our home is always open. People will come in. And I'll never forget one day I noticed my mother was trying to shut the door on someone. And I went to see what's going on. She was saying, get out. You're not welcome. Get out. And she was pushing him out. And this guy was trying to get in. So I was watching. And she went, get out. And she opened the door. And the man appealed to me. I mean, she won't let me in. My mother started shouting at him. You're not welcome yet. And she, she kicked him and she punched him. She kicked him so hard. He said, look, my leg's bleeding. And I was saying, mom, what are you doing? And then she kicked him out. She shut the door. And as an eight-year-old child, I said, mom, I said, what the hell are you doing? And she looked at me, and I never forget what she said. She said, I'm a woman. He didn't listen. He got what he deserved. And even as an eight-year-old child, I went, whoa. I didn't have the words, but I just thought, badass. And you have to understand that this revolution has been coming, I would say, for about 43 years, because a lot of intellectuals got behind the Islamic revolution. They thought it was all connected to British and American involvement with oil. There was a coup in 1953, which was which, which was led which led to Iran losing a lot of their power to Brits and Americans, which is why they have a lot of problems historically. And they thought this was gaining their sovereignty. So a lot of intellectuals got behind the revolution in 79. But as I said on a, a radio show in Britain, there was a there's a judge, a woman. She's in her late 70s now, called Shirin Ebadi. She's now a human rights lawyer, but she was a judge at the time. And she said, I'll never forget the very next day I went into work as a judge. And they said, "Um, you're now a receptionist. And she goes, excuse me, I'm a judge. And they said, no, you're not. All women uh, are judges. You can either be a receptionist or you can go into janitorial. You can clean the toilets. And she said, this is unacceptable. And they said, if you don't like it, you can go home. And she realized that women had been played. All the women who had who had kind of invested in this uh, this revolution had been completely played. And the first thing these theocracies do is to try and control the women. And, and people should understand what that means is that women are the, the first unconditional givers of love and the first educators, they're the mothers. And if you control them, you can control women and it basically it validates your bad behavior. Um, men are seeing their mothers and their sisters and they're seeing women do this and they stand and that's what's so moving to me is is men are completely standing with the women and this is this is more than by the way it's been suggested this is like the final chapter of the me too movement i mean i mean you can't really compare they were saying the killing of mahsa amini was the george floyd moment and 
I think I even said that in my in my first emotional post. But actually, you can't really compare 400 years of slavery. You can't compare what's going on in Iran. You can't compare the suffrage. It's, it's its own thing. But it, when we see this unbelievable injustice, men are standing up because the thing Iran hates the most is when violence is justified by religion, and which is this whole thing of enforced hijab. People are not saying get rid of religion. They're saying just don't force it upon us. Mm. And that's why the men are standing with the women. And that's why I'm, I'm hoping to see a resolve quite soon. A lot of people are not as, uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm quite optimistic, but it's, when I see the men standing with the women, you have to say, you know, it, something something's going to happen soon. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. So this is what we're speaking about now is women in Iran. Um, we're also mentioning um, Islam and what's happening there. It's a country that's led by Islamic uh, rulership. Um, but this is not a Muslim problem. This is not only an Iranian problem. Um, this particular issue that we're talking about now and the revolution is from there, but this is affecting the world at large. And I'm curious, how do we make some of our listeners, some of my friends, some of my black um, um, family and friends, white people that live in Minnesota, why would they care if they're listening to this podcast, what's happening in Iran to women there? How does it, how can they see how it affects them? You know, how does this become more global rather than simply just one country and one apparent religion? When we see women in the West shouting for the women of Iran, they're also shouting for themselves. They're shouting for the against the patriarchy. They're shouting for all the times they've been bullied and raped and not paid enough and, and kept down by men in the West. This is why it's important for the whole world that what we see in Iran, this last bastion of women being oppressed, if that is released and women have this equality and can be seen for the powerful sex they are, if that happens, it has a tremendous effect on the whole world and we'll, and we'll see massive repercussions in the West. Justin, you many times you've said the, the old, the, the, there is an analogy that we have in the Baha'i faith, which, which I said to somebody thinking it was so cliche. It was, you know, the, the person doing my, technicals, she's called Anna Redihoff, she's a woman, and I, and I said that, she goes, how, how does this affect men? I said, well, you know, we have this thing in the Baha'i faith that, <laughs> you know, humanity has is like a bird, two wings, one wing is male, one wing is female, and if one wing is broken, the bird can't fly properly. And she went, excuse me, what did you just say? <laughs> I said, well, wings of a bird. She goes, that is amazing. Why don't you talk about that more? You should talk about that more. I said, have you never heard that? She goes, I have never heard that before in my life. Mm. And that makes sense. So you're actually, you're, you're, you're fighting for women for yourself. I said, yes, that's the idea. Patriarchy hurts everybody. And if we can fix what's going on in Iran, then you release women. And then women around the world see that women are empowered and men can benefit from this. And, you know, what better place than the Man Enough podcast when we talk about toxic masculinity? What you are trying to do, Justin, Liz, Jamie, what you guys are trying to do is when women take their equality, when women are uh, empowered and become truly who themselves, that's when humanity can fly. God knows how much happier I would be. God knows how much more beneficial life would be for me. So I think this is what we're trying to say, that mm. if we can fix this huge thing in Iran with the way a whole group of women, 50 million women there being treated so badly, surely th when the rest of the world see th sees this, other societies where even the West, where women think they're empowered, actually they're not being empowered. They don't realize how much more potential they have. And then, you know, the bird of humanity can fly. I have so much to say. <laughs> go, Liz, go. I go. mean, uh, uh, first of all, yeah, the idea that women in the West, whatever that means, um, are not oppressed is laughable at this point. You know, in the United States, there are several states um, where young girls and women are forced to take a pregnancy to term uh, from their own uncle or dad or brother or boyfriend that raped them, right? So uh, it, it is absolutely, I mean, there's so many parallels actually with what's going on in Iran, with what's going on 
um, in the United States. And, you know, this whole idea that, that we're kind of surprised, right, that teenage girls are leading revolutions is even, again, I, I do it, right? We, we all kind of underestimate teenage girls. I don't think there's a group that we actually <laughs> underestimate more and just, again, like kind of uh, laugh at or um, even kind of dismiss, right? When in reality, even if you look at Iran, like the way that the patriarchy works is that very often it will, uh, like women in Iran are under a conservatorship, right? So it will infantilize adult women. It'll say, you can't travel. If you want a passport, you need your husband to give you permission. Uh, you can't get married or you can't get divorced, right? In order to get married, you need permission from a man. In order to get a divorce, you need an Islamic court to uh, give you the right to do that. Uh, so women can travel. Women don't have rights to their own bodies. They're basically treated like they're mentally unfit to make their own decisions. So grown women are treated like children with male guardians. But then teenage girls and and children uh, are, are adultified. Yes. In, in the law right now, the age of criminal responsibility, if you're a man, is 15 years old. The age of criminal responsibility, uh, if you're female, is nine years old. So girls are held responsible and accountable in the law before uh, boys are. And so young girls are told you're responsible and, and can be also executed and be forced to marriage, right? The consequences are, are, are very big and severe. Um, but, but so, yeah, on the one hand, young girls are being told you're more responsible than him. And then adult women are being told you don't know anything. He knows better than you. And that conflict, mm. right, that mm. contradiction and that impossible expectation that women are supposed to fulfill in a, in a patriarchal society, uh, you know, there's sort of this idea that, that patriarchy is very rational that it's like based on masculine law, this idea of masculine logic, when it's really just based on a fear of women and a fear that, that women or girls uh, claim their power and know about their power. And so, you know, I, I guess as you're, you know, really making this point I, 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 about how we all need to stand together, not just across genders, but also across continents, um, it, it's absolutely true. What's going on um, here at home is, is really not dissimilar from what's going on in the rest of the world. And the more we understand that, the more powerful we are as citizens and the more we actually can take and reclaim our power from the elites and the very few people who benefit from these hierarchies in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Some of the first people at the beginning of the revolution who they killed were these young girls, young TikTokers. And by the way, it's it's important for you to know it, it's not just they happened to be TikTokers who they shot. They followed them on social media. They found out where they lived. They followed them and they shot them. Young girls around the world are one of the most powerful groups. And the Islamic regime knows that. And that is why, on the one hand, they're being infantilized and they're having their rights taken away. But on the other hand, they are being targeted and they're being killed. And it's very scary. But it also shows you the power of this group. What's really inspiring here is the way the women are demanding their rights and the way they're taking them and the way they are pushing back against this, against the hierarchies and the theocracies and and threats. I mean, there was a girl called um, Nika Shah Karami. You might have seen her. Very cute girl who was seen singing well, she was out in the protests and 16 years old and was killed. And the mother of Nika Sharkarmi was asked to, I mean, she's basically was, they said that she committed suicide or she slipped and fell from some building site. Anyway, they found her, she, she was killed. And, and I have to say, I saw the pictures. I mean, She's beaten so badly that it's, there's no question what happened to her. She didn't fall. This was not a fall. And the mother was asked to go on television and give a, a, a full statement to say that it wasn't the security forces who killed her. But she slipped and fell. And this happens a lot where we, we saw this with uh, lots of sports people or musicians. Uh, they, they make some kind of thing. Something happens and they ask to make a full statement on national television. So the mother of Nikos Sharkanami said, no, I'm not going to go and make a full statement. Then they threatened her. They said, we will burn you. As often happens, if you don't do this full statement, they usually kill the people who don't do it. And she goes, you can't burn me. She said, basically, she came back with a, with a line that's become one of, the, um, one of the slogans of the revolution. She said, you can't burn women made of fire. <laughs> and it stopped them in their tracks. 
Ooh. It was like, I know you guys always have this mic drop moment. I remember mean, when Alok, oh when Alok spoke, <laughs> you all went me. quiet for a while. <laughs> when I heard that, <sighs> you know, where you can't burn women made of fire is, that, mm. that is such a, such a shot across the bow of patriarchy. They didn't touch her again. They let her go. They didn't do anything to her. They didn't mm. touch her. And I think that's become, I mean, there are, there are a number of uh, slogans and mottos like woman, life, freedom, um, you know, you are sleaze, you're a pervert, I'm a woman and I am free. There are all these amazing inspirational mottos that are coming out of Iran, which I think, from what you're saying, Liz, that we, we can gain a lot of inspiration from the women who are really, really impressed. And by the way, as artists, we can get a lot of inspiration as well, because usually you find whenever there's a, a culture that is so oppressed, the artwork mm -hmm. and the films is, are extraordinary. And some of the artwork coming out of Iran right now is breathtaking. What we're seeing now is a lot of inspiration coming from the East that I hope that will really inspire us in the West. Mm. Mm. What do you got, Jay? No, I just, I was like... I was hoping this would create a conversation. I didn't mean to shut conversation down. No, no, no. No, 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 it's no, important no, no. That, that We can have a conversation, but it's important to have some of the facts laid out on the table so that we yeah. can have the conversation. Yeah. Yes. And, mm. you know... The, uh, no, please go no, ahead. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, kind of in this, speechless. like... <laughs> that, that, that quote really hit me hard. Mm. Why? Oh. <sighs> It's just hard to believe that that this is happening, and that women have to that women have to um, put their lives on the line for basic human rights. And uh, there's something about that quote that just really got me. That mom, poor mom, who's just like suffering because her daughter was killed. And it's true. I think women are made of fire. And I just think that um, men have been afraid because they don't know how to handle the fire. And um, I'm just, it's just so sick of our collective fucking insecurity. And, um, and I just want it to stop. I just want it to stop. So there's just something about the way you painted that picture and this woman and, and willing to just, you know, it reminds me of, um, reminds me of, you know, in the Baha'i faith, we have these heroes, these feminist heroes who, who refused to abide by the forced, um, I, I, I guess you call it the, the moral police, if you will, of the time, you know, in the 1800s. And I think of Tahare, who just said, you could kill me, but you'll never stop the emancipation of women. And so I just feel I just feel like we're here because you know we're, I'm just grateful because it was it's only because of women that we're even able to, to have this conversation and do this podcast. So that's all. I don't have that much else to say. Actually, Justin, you, you just just to inform you that um, ta that quote from Tara is being chanted uh, on the streets of Iran. Oh, she's being used. Yeah, they, 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 she's seen as a national hero there, and she was a Baha'i, and she was. Somebody who's the first woman who re removed the veil um, in in public, and they're chanting her name. They're, they're chanting that quote, which is why on Iran State TV, a, a lot of these, I mean, people who are listening should know that on Iran State TV they're blaming the Baha'is for this. They're saying it's it's this is all. At first, it was the Jews, then it was America, and now they're saying this is all the Baha'is' fault because they've gone into our education, and you see young girls, young girls you know, standing up and throwing out the Basijis who come, you know, these moral police who come to the school to tell them to stop chanting. And, and they say, get lost Basiji, you know, they, they're, and it's peaceful. That's the thing that what gets me, it's, these are peaceful protests. And, and what's powerful when you look at people who uh, have been studying these kind of collective mass movements, the reason why we are hopeful is when a lot of women are involved, mm -hmm. it validates the, it validates the movement. And usually you get what you want at the end. Yeah, women's movements uh, or, or women-led movements are, are more successful, right? Uh, the research that you're pointing to is, is, I think, 
you know, something we need to remind ourselves of. And it's a great reminder, again, wherever you live, where, you know, whether it's the country you live in or the community you're in, that uh, really having female leaders will, will, will make you more successful at whatever you're advocating for. It, it really is, you know, and, and respect and equality of women is that there's a direct correlation with the peace inside a nation and, and inside a community. And so we really kind of, there's like a win, 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 right? To um, not just be inclusive of women, but actually uh, make sure that women are, are, are leading our movements. Because women... We need to go here. We need to go here for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brighten the mood for just one quick moment because we have a man who's joining us here who believes that women are better. And Jamie now has a partner in crime. <laughs> uh, I've been so, outnumbered. So I think... Well, you know, I, I, I know think that we need to hear uh, his case... Of, as to why he thinks women are better, yeah. and so then we can have a conversation. Conversation about, it. about <laughs> because I definitely share this thought <laughs> that you do. I mean that 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 I mean that I believe. Can I just real quick before you do? I have, I have always believed that women are better than men. <laughs> <laughs> and it's he's me, finally and, feeling free. <laughs> oh my god, I, I just do. Um, but I understand that that comes with something with it. And sometimes for women can feel offensive because, um, it puts a burden on your shoulders. Um, it, it, it dismisses all that maybe women have gone through to become who you are. Um, it's a compliment with a wink as someone once told me, <laughs> benevolent sexism. Um, so I we learned about that <laughs> phrase in real time like, over but a year ago. I can ago. rephrase this and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. The reason why I make that statement is not that I think women inherently are better than men, but rather at this point in society, at this point in the evolution of humanity, of our species, the human species, I believe that women are doing it better in general than men are um, for a host of reasons. I think because like what you just said, if you are leading revolutions and, and, and they're more successful, it's because I think women right now do things a little bit better than <laughs> men do. And therefore, that leads to my statement why I think women are better. Not inherently, Liz, Okay, I do. So I, I want to love... hear, hear from our guest now before, before Liz... Uh... Explodes. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> She's smiling. She's smiling for all of our listeners. Tell, tell, us, tell us what your thought is on, on this. Well, look, uh, all, I, all I was trying to say in, in the last sentence is that we, women kind of bring legitimacy and, and, and sympathy to, to movements in general. But this, this is according to kind of scholars of, of civil resistance when they say that when there's a high levels of female participation, the mass movement becomes more kind of inclusive, innovative, nonviolent, and, and crucially, as Liz says, more likely to achieve their goals. Mm. I, I mean, I'm a comedian and I used to, we used to do jokes. I did a show back in 96 with a Jewish comedian called Arab and the Jew was uh, when Yitzhak Rabin got <laughs> shot. We did a show and I remember asking him, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the most important thing in a relationship? And, and, and the Jewish comedian would say the most important thing in a relationship is communication. If you're making love to your partner, for God's sake, tell them. And I think that was such a great joke. <laughs> <laughs> and it tells you even in the bed, men are worse. They have no clue. The women are often asleep when things are, are happening. So, so, with re that's, so that's just a joke, but, but, but that's, it, it, jokes often give a fundamental truth about, yes, women, women are the fairer sex. And also it's very interesting that in the, the Baha'i faith, which I was raised with, the, the Godhead is seen to be as a feminine energy. Whenever, you know, Moses spoke to the, to the burning bush, Baha'u'llah spoke to um, a maid of heaven. And it's often, Whenever the prophet had some kind of communication with a higher existence, it was always in a female form. Mm. Mm. Rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I guess it, I agree that women are doing better. 
Um, wow. But I'm. It, that's a no, that's a big. Hey, that's doing a, better and better are di- they are different. Are different which is doing better according to a certain set of you know characteristics, right? So we had Scott Galloway on the show talk about the number of you know women who are graduating you know from college versus the amount of men who are graduating 63%. from college, right? Um, in twenty, you know, last year there are more single women who bought ha- homes than single men, even though single women have a lower medium income. Like right? women mm-hmm. are getting stuff done, but we're like tired. Like we're tired of being better. <laughs> like I'm like that's it, fair. You know what I mean? And it, well, that's one part of it is that it comes at such a high cost uh, as it does for, you know, people of color, for women of color, right? Like all of, you know, like black women are the most educated group in our society, right? Like they're like black women just outperform um, like all of us in so many different respects. And what I hear from them is like, we don't want to be this, you know, forced to be superhuman, right? And forced to um, overachieve and, you know, again, like be given half as much and have to achieve twice as uh, much as you to get just half of the recognition. There was a lot of math that didn't make sense. <laughs> but, no, I got you. But, <laughs> and then the other part, which I've brought up before, is that, you know, saying better or worse, it just sets up this binary regardless, right? And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, again, it, it sets up, well, men are bad and women are good, or else women are, are bad and men are good. And I think that's what has given us the society even right now, where where we all think we're we're against each other, right? And yeah, that yeah. we're different. Anyway, I think, I, we, I mean, we could do a whole we, season we, on this, we agree right? on it. But I think it's important even how this subject comes up, because I think there's amazing men in the world. Men are fantastic. Obviously, I believe that God created uh, uh, all of humanity and all, all of the earth. God didn't make a mistake. God didn't make, you know, I mean, he, he, it, the design is exactly as God intended. But we do know that when I, I have children, depending upon how I raise them determines how they turn out, whether they're a good mm-hmm. person in the world or maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they're forgiving or not, compassionate or not. And I think the way that men have been groomed um, we're seeing the product of it just like a child that maybe has some adjustments. Mm-hmm. Um, all people, women too need adjustments. All people do. I get that. But I think it's interesting when I say that and to acknowledge where women are doing it right, where we can learn and make these adjustments. When we hear about what's happening in Iran, when we hear about what's happening through in Africa, in villages there, when we hear about what's happening so many years ago in China when you were not allowed to have women um, when they were killed off <clears throat> because they wanted boys. Still happens, uh, yeah. Still happens, right? I think it's important to just recognize where uh, the where we can learn. For instance, let me say this also. The black experience in America, I believe the most forgiving people, at least in this country, are people of African descent. You have black people who were slaves. In the name of the Bible, which it wasn't, right? The Bible's wonderful and Christ is wonderful, but done. A religion forced on us and enslaved, and yet black people live in a country and love white people and love Jesus, love Christ. I can't understand that sometimes. Black people embraced the very religion that was validating people from treating them like animals. And yet, so what happened? Black people were tired of being forgiving. But because of that horrible, historic, and still current state, Black people have learned to be forgiving. So I think that we have developed that wing more than maybe our counterparts because of the history. I think women who are the first to breastfeed, generally, um, or... Sorry, I, I know that I don't want to be insensitive. You just stepped on a landmine. Yeah, Here yeah. we go. Um, I think women carry a baby in you. I think you, in, in general, you learn to care for another. You learn empathy. You learn selflessness. You learn how to sacrifice your comfort for another. I think what that develops in a human being are qualities that make mm-hmm. us better as humans. And if men are not afforded that, then we have to learn in other ways. Um, so those are the reasons why I think it's important that we talk about these things. How are some of the things that make women, uh, give them their capacity so that men, we can reevaluate. And I say all this so that the men that are listening and us to not be down on ourselves to think men suck. We don't suck. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. But, but there are some things that we, but there's a binary created though, that if women are better, men suck. And a lot of that is politics. A lot of that is, and that you can't help it, right? That there's sensationalism and news and all of that. But uh, I want to I want to hear what you have to say about this, Ahmed. 
Uh, Sorry, I took Jamie, um, no, it's great. Uh, Jamie, what you just said, I've, I've always wondered why people don't talk about the forgiveness of black people more. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky that I, I got to work with Whoopi Goldberg, um, who is a force of nature. And and she balanced up something in my life uh, because as a stand-up comedian, I, start, I started doing comedy in a very white male dominated mm. comedy circuit of the, of the of the British comedy circuit and I, I noticed after a while after 10 years of doing shows where you're, you're on a bill at the comedy store there's like three comedians or four comedians and an MC I'd always ask them why am I never on with a woman mm. I've never performed with women they goes well Omid because you're, you're the diversity we either have a woman and three guys or we have um, a speciality act we have a character comedian or we have an ethnic minority, a black guy or you. So I never really got to perform with girls. I never really, I never really got to know any girl comedians until I'm, uh, Whippy Goldberg got me on her show, which we did on NBC's 2003-2004. And she was the, the most impactful influence uh, in, in my career because when we talk about women being better, she had the insight to to do a number of things. Number one, um, she never felt the writers wrote very well for me. And I never forget, she she stopped the writers saying, she goes, I, I, I love doing an impression of Whoopi. She goes, I had told her jokes. Is that the best you got? This guy's an award-winning comedian. Is that the best you got? You know? And I said, Whoopi, that's so kind. She goes, I got you back, baby. She kept saying, <laughs> she kept saying, I got you back, baby. And that was the thing she taught me was she said, you people, I said, would you stop calling me you people? Who, who do you mean? She goes, you know, all you brown people, you know, Middle Eastern people, all you brown people. Comedy-wise, you're 30 years behind the black community. So, Ahmed, you got to keep going until you're 50. He goes, the beginning of your career, you, you're going to do stuff that Richard Pryor was doing, which is trying to, you know, get in with a white metropolitan audience. You're trying to, you have to denigrate yourself. And then Richard grew up, and then he did his own, Comedy, where he found his authentic voice, and you got to find your authentic voice. Mm. And you got to promise me now that you do not stop because one day your people are going to need you. And it's interesting that I think that day has kind of come now because I've I've, I've been a stand-up comedian. I've been speaking out. I'm, I'm not fearful. I feel I can articulate things in a very easy way. But it was Whoopi Goldberg who had the insight to not just bring me up and introduce me. And by the way, she always said to me that she introduced two comedians in, in from Britain. One was me, the other one was Billy Connolly, who is the finest comedian we've ever had in, in the British Isles. So I'm so moved. And she always says, you and Billy, only two people made me laugh till I was crying. So the fact that she gave me that confidence, no one had ever, I just thought slinging jokes was something I can, I, I sling a few jokes that put, a hundred pounds cash in my hand and I'm done. I didn't, I didn't think it had any kind of global significance. Comedy she says, is, is never the end. It's a means to an end. Mm. And, and, and we're trying to get to world unity and peace and we can use comedy to get that. So I'm really thankful to her. So yeah, that's a great, so, so the best people, are the black, black women, they're the strongest people. <laughs> the uh, I, that's a, that's a great segue. I do want to talk about comedy a little bit. As you know, in America, there is a large conversation about comedy and um, where its place is currently um, and and what does comedy look like that uh, doesn't divide? What um, how can one talk about issues that maybe are sensitive without offending an entire group of people who are maybe marginalized? Um, where are the limits? Um, can you push the limits? Is that comedy's? Is that the point of comedy to be able to kind of push the limits and say what a, a bunch of people are thinking and maybe be slightly offensive, or is that are we are we done with those days? I'm just curious in your comedy, how do you kind of navigate uh, those political landmines, if you will, and where do you push the envelope and where do you choose not to? You know, you know, offense and cancel culture is very much used over here in Britain as a way of distracting whenever you know, the hierarchy and the politicians behave badly. There was a time where politicians were behaving so badly. And yet we tried, they tried to cancel British comedians like Jimmy Carr, where they put out a TikTok um, of a joke that's out of context that make, make him look like a disgrace. And the prime minister says, oh, that, that joke by Jimmy Carr was an absolute disgrace. And, and we condemn it as on behalf of the 
the, the government and all this kind of stuff. So they, they do that. They, they put these things out to distract from themselves. As far as navigating um, issues, I, I do know that um, I, I have found myself in my concert pieces. Co- comedy clubs, you, you kind of you got to be funny in the first ten seconds, otherwise people throw you off. There's a famous story of a of a comedian coming on, and people and people say you're not funny, get off. He goes, well, give me a chance, and they said you're not funny, get off. And the comedian said, well, listen, I'm actually a schizophrenic, and the audience go, you can both get off. You know, there's people are so quick. You can both get that. Both of you get the hell off stage. So, so you, there, there's a pressure to be funny very quickly. But in concert pieces, you do have the space to expound on what you're doing. So, if I have a a piece that I want to talk about, I find if I can, um, I suppose, enunciate and be more eloquent in my setup and just give a bit more information, uh, I find people laugh more. And I know that. Get for people to get to know you is a very important thing. I was very shy to do podcasts. I was shy to do TV interviews. And then I did the Persian language. That's the big thing. And then I, th- this was the huge thing where by doing a show in the Persian language, which went out on BBC Persian, it's a massive platform, a 100 million person platform. I did a, I did a half hour comedy show that was seen by insane numbers. I said, what are the numbers? I said, well, it could be minimum 12 million, maximum 55 million. So... I said, are you are you kidding? That those numbers are like the are Super insane. Bowl. It's like the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's crazy. It was a big thing, but I did it because I wanted them to know me because they didn't know me. Whenever I did a, like a Persian language radio show, if, honestly, Justin, if I did a joke, they wouldn't even register I was doing a joke because they only know me as an as an actor. They'd say, I'll give you an example. They said, Mister Jalili, um, we've seen you in some films. Do you have any films coming out? And I'd say, Well, actually, two years ago, I did a film about constipation but it hasn't come out yet <laughs> and they say well when's it coming out i said we keep pushing for a release and there's no movement they said will you come back and let us know when it comes out i said i'd be so relieved and then but now they know me now they know me i go on there goes got any films coming out i said i did a film last year about diarrhea because where's it coming out i say all over the place and they laugh so now, so it shows you oh, you have to, you have to know nothing like a good poop you have to joke. know someone. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just giving that as an example. It was just a silly poop joke, but now they get it. And but the thing that was missing is they didn't know me. So in answer to your question, Justin, about how do you how do you navigate that? It's a fine line between get people getting to know you, trust you, and then in your language and in your setup, be economical, but give the information that you need to give. Um, so people understand where you're at because I find Gen Z millennials, unless I'm really clear with what I'm trying to say, people don't get it. Like on Twitter, it's a bit difficult for comedians to be on Twitter because we'll do a joke. The next minute I'll do something about Iran and something serious. The thing, well, are you joking? What, what, what is this? We don't know who you are. Mm. And, it, it, and, it's, and this is the disconnect we have as comedians because we want to be serious we also, we want to be funny. So I'll do a joke and then people say, well, what is that? You're the, and then everyone gets upset with you. Mm. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. Well, this was awesome. Yes. Wow. You are, uh, we're so happy that you came on the show and uh, you're so funny. You're so brilliant. And um, and doing such, such good with your... Um, success in the world you know there's a yeah. lot of people who don't come to the terms that you have i know that you've always been a good human but you have expressed that certain things you're embracing more now than maybe you did in another time in your life right like reclaiming your iranian identity um using your voice for a platform to speak of issues that have always been in your spirit but maybe not in the same capacity you are now and when we get to that point when we use our celebrity our our money our uh, uh, reach to actually do something so your legacy is not just in your art, but rather the legacy is in forwarding humanity, advancing the um, all people, in this case, um, advancing men to be more elevated and getting out of the way of women, um, makes me really happy to know you and to know that there are people in the world, especially men that care about uh, things more than them. Than themselves so thanks for doing that thanks for being well, on. well jamie us. i give you first of all jamie thank you i give you two puke emojis for that but thank you very much <laughs> i'll take them i'll take them if i got you to puke <laughs> yeah. 
I will say it's very interesting you say about how using your platform, this whole Iran issue. Being British society, I'm a minority within a minority. So I'm a British Iranian, so I'm a minority. And then within the Iranian community, I'm a, I'm a Baha'i, which was a persecuted minority in that revolution. A lot of Baha'is were killed uh, by this Islamic regime. So I'm a minority within a minority. And even within the Baha'i community of London, my family are a bit weird. So I was a minority within a minority within a minority. And then even within my own family, I felt kind of kind of out of it, not really part of them. So the, the levels of kind of displacement got to cosmic uh, levels. <laughs> so it was Jeez. something that really has affected me. So I've tried to reclaim that. I've tried to reclaim that through my work, through stand-up comedy, like doing jokes, you know, making fun of the way people see me, making fun of you're commenting on 9-11, being some kind of bridge between you know, the West and the East, because I really believe the earth is one country, mankind is citizens. I really believe that we're all one and all these different aspects we have are beautiful. So in a sense, especially during the pandemic, I was really trying to claim my Iranian identity. I did a show in the Persian language and this all then culminated with the Iranian football team at the World Cup, who we just came, just came and went. Of course, they lost to the USA, but this has been such a political World Cup, and you see that before the World Cup, we had lost any hope that this team was going to represent the people of Iran. They were very much owned by the Islamic regime of Iran. They were made to take photographs and film with President Raisi. They were shown to be bowing to their leaders, to what people thought were these um, awful theocratic totalitarian regime that had been killing all these people. So we didn't feel there was any hope that they would make any kind of statement. And then they did one of the hugest things, which was not sing the national anthem. And that was that reaction for me and in, in Iran went nuclear because they thought, wow, for some people in Iran, it was too little too late. But for those of us outside the country, we knew the risks they were taking. We knew that their families would be in trouble if they did this. And it was amazing in that one moment, I became very proud to be Iranian as well, because at the end of the day, being Iranian was about standing up for righteousness. It was about being with the people. And at that moment, I became very proud. So it's been a big journey from age 13 to uh, a 57-year-old watching a, bu a bunch of guys in their 20s not singing a national anthem. But it was, it was a huge moment for me, and, and, and it did restore a lot of pride. Mm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. It's been really wonderful. It's such a great podcast. And if there's anything at the end of the day, all we want to do is just help and, and raise more awareness. You know, information is power. And the more people who listen to this and know what's actually going on, they can be more empowered to do something. And, and doing something means speaking up as humanity matures. When there is a government that is, you know, going against, going against all the, the understood, you know, human rights basic human rights of people, when a government is flagrantly going against that, all the other governments and all the people of the world should rise up and do away with that government. That is the way the future world will go. We're not there yet now, but this is why we need global awareness of what is actually happening, because at the end of the day, your little toe is furthest away from your brain sensorily, but if you stub your toe, it hurts. Iran is the little toe of the human body right now, if you're in America, you're furthest away from them. But actually, it affects us, it affects everyone, as, as Ukraine affects us. So all these things, we have to take them on board and feel them. And it doesn't mean you've got to be an activist all day long. Just be aware of it. And last question. Uh, can you ask the last question? Yes. What does it mean to you to be man enough? That's a that's a great question. Um, do you know what? I've listened, listened to the podcast. You can cut this bit out. You'd, you'd think I'd be ready with something like this. But <laughs> oh, no, we're leaving actually, it in. Um, no, no, we're <laughs> leaving it in. Are you leaving all this in? Because I remember listening to that. that, that and if, if Liz ever asked me this, well, I would say this. <laughs> but but I, I am not prepared it's for this It's better off the cuff. All. It's better off the cuff. I think for me to be man enough is to to not be afraid of women's emotions and to listen, to engage with it and not feel threatened and not feel attacked. And to realize actually when, when emotion is coming your way, 
it's because fundamentally you are trusted. Women never share those feelings with anyone unless they trust them. Now they do that with their friends because they trust their friends, but when they do it with a man, it sometimes feels more intense and a, and a man feels worried by it. They think, oh my God, I can't, this is too much. I can't handle this. But actually, if a man changes their perception and realize they trust you so much, and if you just engage with it, it's actually a very beautiful thing. It, it can seem scary, but if you engage with it, it means they trust you and that means there's love there. And if people, if people get that, then you realize actually that is fundamentally what being a man is about, is having the power to perceive and to go along with it, to perceive and understand it because you're trusted and you are loved. Mm. Mm. Great answer. Good answer. Love. Well, my friend, mm. you are indeed man enough. <laughs> Thank you for joining right. us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yes, uh, sir. And you know what? I, I think that you should come back. Maybe um, if I can't be on the show, you should come in and be a, a fill-in for me sometime. Oh, yeah. I think you'd be a fantastic guest host. Mm. Indeed. So, I'd be honest. Uh, Completely. I'd be honest. It's a, it's, the, what you guys are doing is great. It's it's it, it, All those uncomfortable conversations that people have and uh, I mean, reading your book was the most uncomfortable experience in my life. So I think what oh, this was of your was life, good, mm. wow, of his life, even more than the things you life. shared today. That's fantastic. <laughs> that makes me feel really good. <laughs> of your life, but that's the point. That's the whole point, that's and it's great. very enlightening. You go to places which are uncomfortable, but they're completely enlightening, and they're and you feel you grow and you and you're refreshed by it. All right, my friend. Thank you so much Thank for joining so us, much. Uh, and for all of you who are listening. Uh, please like and subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us at manenough.com slash podcasts. I mean, it's great to have you here, Justin. Uh, send us off. All right. I am Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. I'm Jamie Heath. And he's a grandpa. <laughs> this <laughs> is Man, Man Enough. Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfair Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble in partnership with Cadence 13 and Odyssey Company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Maholtra Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Anna Saufeld from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kayla Nicholson is our producer. Ashmi Elizabeth Dang is head of marketing. And Susie Landers O'Connell is our lead editor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>